have a really special treat. Um, Andy Nacelli has become a good friend of ours. He's been in our church for many months. This is his final Sunday here, so he's agreed to preach here in our church on his final Sunday. Um, I've gotten to know Andy, and the, the more I've gotten to know him, I, I've realized that um, not only is he brilliant, he's got a couple PhDs and a master's and some other degrees, but, and that's, that's good, and that's, that's impressive, and tells you a lot about his, his faithfulness. But what's been really impressive is his, his humility and his desire to honor and love God. And so I'm really excited, and he has much wisdom to share with us this morning. So can we just warmly welcome Andy Nacelli today? Thank Thanks. You. Thank you. Well, question for you. Do you know what triage is? T-R-I-A-G-E, triage. All right, so you've probably experienced this if you've ever broken your leg or sprained your ankle, say on a Friday night, and you have to go to the emergency room, and you show up, and there are already 20 other people there. You check in, have a seat, and you wait, and you wait, and you think, we've got to be getting close. And about 30 minutes later, you think it's, you're probably about ready to be seen. And then some guy gets rushed in on a stretcher. and just had a horrific car accident. And he gets attention before you do. He cuts in line. Uh, why? That's an example of triage, medical triage. Triage is assigning degrees of urgency to wounds or illnesses to decide the order of treatment of a large number of patients. So it's the action of sorting according to quality or sometimes according to priority and urgency. We understand that we have to prioritize. Some things are more pressing than other things. Uh, my wife, Jenny, and I have three little girls and sometimes all of them are doing something that demands our attention, like crying at the same time. And we have to do parental triage. Whom do we give our attention to first, right? We're, we're familiar with this. Now, did you know there's such a thing as this triage when it comes to what the Bible teaches? We could call it theological triage. Some Bible teachings are more important than other Bible teachings. I'll be clear, I'm not saying that some are unimportant. They're all important, but some are more important than others. And to simplify things, we could think of this on three levels. First, second, third. So first level teachings or issues are most central and essential to Christianity. You can't deny these teachings and still be a Christian in any meaningful sense. For example, there's one God in three persons. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus sacrificially died for sinners. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Jesus is coming back. These are the sorts of doctrines that are first-level doctrines. Second-level issues create reasonable boundaries between Christians, such as different denominations and local churches. These issues will have a bearing on what sort of church you're a part of. For example, what is your view on baptism or church government 
or God's sovereignty in salvation, or the role of men and women in the church and the home. You don't have to hold one particular view on those sorts of issues to be a Christian, but it's, it's challenging for a church to have a healthy unity when its leaders and members disagree on these issues. So first level, second level. Now third level issues are disputable matters or matters of indifference. For example, what is your view of who the sons of God are in Genesis 6? There are many viable views. Uh, do you need to attend a church or separate from people because of maybe they take a different view than you do on that? No, no. There are some issues that are third level. They're not unimportant, but members of the same church should be able to disagree on third level issues and still have close fellowship with each other. Disagreement on these issues should not cause disunity in the church family. You with me? First, second, third? All right. This sermon is about third-level issues or disputable matters. No two finite and fallen humans will ever in this life perfectly agree with each other on everything. Not even a godly husband and a godly wife who are happily married. We all have different perspectives, different backgrounds, different personalities, different preferences, different thought processes, different levels of understanding about God and his word and his world. So can you guess what happens when a group of self-professed Christians join together as a church? Even a, a doctrinally robust, gospel-centered church, can you guess what happens? Do you think they might disagree with each other on anything? Well, I'm going to suggest 75 disputable matters that can be extremely divisive in some churches, roughly 75. I've grouped them into about 17 rough categories. Okay? <laughs> you laugh, but here we go. Uh, number one, Sabbath. How should Christians treat Sunday? Is it okay to go to a public restaurant? Or shop at a grocery store? Or watch a football game? Or play a football game? Or do yard work? Or work for pay? A second category, entertainment. Should we play video games or go to movie theaters or watch movies or TV or read novels like the Harry Potter series? What's okay and what isn't? Third category, language. What kind of language is wrong? What is inappropriate? Is it okay to say words like shoot or darn or gosh or other euphemisms? Is it wrong to watch a film or read a book that uses a curse word? Or category of dress, what's appropriate and what is modest? How dressed up should we be for a Sunday morning service? How should we dress throughout the week? Should men wear hats inside a building or while praying? May ladies wear makeup and jewelry? If so, what kind and how much? May men have facial hair? May ladies wear pants, shorts, sleeveless? How tight is too tight? How short is too short? May guys and girls swim together? What should we wear if we go swimming? What about body piercings and tattoos? Another category, smoking and drinking. May we occasionally smoke cigars or drink alcohol in moderation? Or money, should Christians give more than 10% of their gross income to their church? 
Is it ever okay to be in debt? Should Christians live as frugally as possible so that they can give away the rest to advance the gospel throughout the world? What size homes should we live in? How much money should we put in savings now? And how much should we give away immediately? Or celebrating holidays, the seventh category. Should we celebrate Halloween? Should we go trick-or-treating and give out candy in our neighborhood? Should we participate in Easter egg hunts? Should we open presents on Christmas Day? Should we have a Christmas tree? Should parents perpetuate the Santa Claus myth and not get credit for presents that they selected, paid for, and wrapped? (laughs) I'm trying not to lean one way or the other in these questions, just floating them out there. Uh, uh, In eighth category, having children. Uh, When should married couples start having children? How many children should they have? May they use non-abortive forms of birth control? Should they have a home birth or a hospital birth, doula or doctor, epidural or natural? Or parenting infants and children? Is attachment parenting okay? Should we follow the book Growing Kids God's Way and immediately put children on a strict schedule? When should parents start disciplining their children? Exactly how should they discipline their children? Should they feed their children only organic food? Is it okay to eat fast food? What if it's Chick-fil-A, Christian fast food? Um, should, should, parents, should parents give their children primarily homeopathic medicine? Is it okay to use antibiotics? Or a tenth category, education, homeschool, or public school, or private school, or private Christian school, guy-girl relationships, dating or courtship. When may such relationships begin? How much parental involvement should there be? How far is too far in a physical relationship prior to marriage? A twelfth category, church meetings. How often should a church meet? Only on Sunday mornings? Is Saturday night okay? Should it be Sunday morning, Sunday night, and a Wednesday night prayer meeting? Are multiple services, like with the same sermon, okay? May a church have more than one campus and display the preaching on a screen via video? Should churches have small groups or Sunday school or organized programs for evangelism? Our 13th category, teaching about the end times. Are the left-behind novels theologically accurate? Uh, (laughs) Must we embrace a pre-tribulational rapture? Or music, should we avoid certain music because of its associations and or its morality? Is a rock beat bad? What about some forms of Christian hip-hop? What forms of dancing are acceptable? What instruments should a church use in their services? What songs should they sing? Primarily psalms and old hymns? Should the singing be only congregational? Or may it include prepared music, such as vocal solos? When Christians worship God through singing, is it a good thing to express themselves physically, such as lifting up their hands or clapping? Or another category, Bible translations. Should we use only the King James Version? Or the ESV? Is the NIV okay? Or the NLT? Or another category, politics. Should we vote for only Republican or only Democratic candidates? Is abortion such a paramount evil that we should be single-issue voters? Is a Democratic Republic the least worst system of government? Is capitalism better than socialism? How should we think about immigration, or gun control, or Fox News, or Rush Limbaugh, or Rachel Maddow? 
And a final category, environment. How should we care for God's world? Should we recycle? How should we think about global warming? Is it okay to drive an SUV? I'll stop. But I could easily expand that list. And I'm sure that some of you are thinking, wait, wait, that shouldn't have been on the list. <laughs> that's, a, that's a first level issue, or that's a second level. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here. All right. So by mentioning those issues, I don't intend to make fun of anyone or to make light of those issues. Many of those issues are very important. And I have an opinion on every one of them. And I wouldn't have that opinion if I didn't think I was right on them. In another context, I'd be happy to unpack why I think what I do. But that's not the point of this morning. No, uh, the point is that these issues may be important, but the question is how important are they? Are they as important as first-level issues or second-level issues? No. These issues illustrate disputable matters in which Christians in the same church should be able to disagree and still have unity. We should expect disagreements. We shouldn't expect everyone to agree about disputable matters. We should learn to live with those differences. So our goal is not always to eliminate differences, but our goal should always be to glorify God by loving each other in our differences. So here's the big question I'd like to answer this morning. How should Christians love one another when we disagree about disputable matters? And we don't have time to answer that question comprehensively by bringing to bear every single text in the Bible that, that relates to this issue. But there is one passage in particular that addresses this very question, and it's Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 14. Romans is the greatest letter in the history of the world. And in this letter... Did you know that 10% of it, 10% of it, is devoted to answering this question? It addresses this issue. And as we work through this passage, you'll see this is brilliant. It's profound. It displays God's great knowledge and insight and wisdom. So understanding this and applying what we're about to study should make you marvel at God's wisdom. Now, those lists of third-level issues I just gave you, none of those issues are exact parallels to the issues we're going to see in Romans 14. But the principles in this passage apply to third-level issues. So I'd like to present 12 principles about how to disagree with other Christians about disputable matters from this passage. And I'm borrowing these 12 principles from a friend named J.D. Crowley. He wrote a commentary on Romans that is going to be translated into Cambodian. J.D. Crowley is a missionary, a veteran missionary in Cambodia, and I'll be quoting and paraphrasing from him often. Uh, it's a great commentary. He's a dear friend. We're planning to write a book together on the conscience. He has lived in Asian cultures his whole life, moved to Cambodia in 1994. This is a great guy. God has used J.D. to shape my thinking on these issues, especially uh, since he's grown up in Asian cultures, he's lived in other places, he's helped me understand better how culture and conscience interrelate. So let's listen to God instruct us how to disagree with other Christians about disputable matters. And the first principle is the most important one in the whole passage. Number one, welcome those who disagree with you. Welcome those who disagree with you. Romans 14, verses 1 and 2. Let's read those. As for the one 
who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. NIV says, without quarreling over disputable matters. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So in this passage, Paul is addressing two basic groups. The first group you see in verse 1, the weak in faith. See that? Verse 1, 14, 1. And the second group you see if you look down at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong. See that? So two groups, the weak and the strong. Those are the two groups Paul's addressing here. Now right out of the gate, verse 1, we need to answer the question, what does weak in faith mean? Does weak in faith mean that a person's faith in Christ is weak? No. No. It means that their conscience is weak because their conscience won't allow them to do something that is not inherently wrong. The issue then is who thinks that their faith lets them do this or that? You see that? It's really important. Okay. Now, the strong in faith do not necessarily please God more than the weak in faith. Both can glorify God. Both can sin against God. So it's not, one is not inherently better morally than the other. Now, we need to understand the nature of the disagreements in this passage before we can apply them to our context. So the tables I'm going to show you uh, are from J.D. Crowley. And in this first table, you see two columns. In the left column, you see the free, those with a strong conscience. And in the right, the strict, those with a weak conscience. The free would say something like this. Everything belongs to God, so I can eat anything I want. The strict would say, I think God wants us to guard the Old Testament food restrictions. And the free would be mostly Gentiles, and the strict would be mostly Jews. Now, this free, strict distinction does not necessarily line up exactly with a strong or weak conscience for every single third-level issue. But it does for many of them, and it does for the issues in Romans 14. Now, Paul probably wrote Romans to Jewish and Gentile Christians. So my understanding is that the weak in faith is primarily Jewish Christians, and that the strong in faith is primarily Gentile Christians. So in writing this passage in Romans, which is the only one in the whole letter where it seems like Paul has a specific problem in mind in Rome, in writing this passage, it seems like Paul's point is unity in that church. When he sees these two groups, and he wants there to be unity. That's why he's writing this. My favorite commentator on Romans is a man named Doug Moo. And he explains that the weak in faith were probably influenced by a Jewish tradition of asceticism that's based on the law. So they thought that Christians, uh, for Christians, the law was still authoritative. Christians still had to follow the Old Testament law. And therefore, they thought a sincere Christian should avoid eating meat and drinking wine and should observe the holy days. So only by following those practices could a, a, a Christian be a good Christian. And can you guess what happens then with these, these two groups? Well, it, it becomes schismatic. So the free, the people who say, everything belongs to God so I can eat anything I want, some people start to say this, I have freedom to eat meat, and those who don't are just being stupid. And then the strict, the, the ones with the weak conscience, they say, I don't eat meat, and those who do are bad Christians. Okay, problem, schism, 
This is not good. And, and this chart here illustrates just one of the issues, eating meat. There's more than one issue in this passage. Let me just show you the three issues quickly. The first you see in verse 2. See in verse 2, the strong eat all kinds of food while the weak eat only vegetables. See that? And then look at verse 5. Talking about days. So the strong do not distinguish among days while the weak value some days more than others. And then verse 21, the strong drink wine while the weak abstain. So three issues here. And the two main views of the weak and the strong can not only be schismatic like we saw on this table, taken to their extremes, they can become heretical. So in this next table, you still have the two basic categories, free and strict, strong and weak, but you can go a step further on each side and cross the line into heresy. So one, you could say uh, they're too free. They cross the line into immorality and lawlessness. They say, I can eat meat, and I can even go to parties at idol temples. No, that's heresy. That's lawlessness. You don't do that. But on the other side, you could be too strict and, and think that others must be strict like you to be saved. You would say, you must not eat meat if you want to be a Christian. That's heresy. That's a heresy of the Judaizers. So you can go from sin to heresy in how you hold your views. Now, Paul, knowing this was going on in Rome, he's an apostle. He could have solved this problem by doing something like this. Okay, guys, those of you who have a weak conscience, you need to mature. You need to start eating meat. Enjoy what God has given you. He could have done that. Or he could have said, all right, you who are strong, you have a strong conscience, you should never eat meat. I know this is hard, and I know it's okay to eat meat, but you might, you might bother some people who don't understand the freedom we have. So just don't ever eat meat. He could have done that too. And he doesn't either. Because we shouldn't be stricter than God. Now, this is a big point. Again, Doug Moo draws this out. One of the most important points in this passage is what Paul does not say. He does not say, all right, weak in faith, change your view. He doesn't say that. He makes clear that he doesn't agree with them, and you know, by calling them weak, suggests that they have room to become stronger, right? But he doesn't tell them to change their minds. He doesn't berate them for being immature. He doesn't say, get with the program. Yet, what is our initial instinct when we have a disagreement with someone who might be unnecessarily strict in our view? It's our instinct to try to win them over to our argument, show we're right, well, Paul is wise enough to know that there's a time and a place for those kinds of efforts. Yes, it's right to explain the gospel and its implications and what the freedom is. That's right. That's good. I'm not saying don't do that. But all of us have our traditions. They're not easy to give up. And if they're not contrary to the gospel, if they're not hindering the work of the church, we should learn to live with those differences. All right, one more table here. This is the most complicated one. Uh, so on the... The far sides, those, you've already seen that, right? So the middle part is what I want to focus on. This is Paul's solution to the problem. So the free, this is, this is good. Uh, you're free, yet you're not looking down on those who are strict, but you're welcoming them. That's not sin. So I can eat meat, but it's okay if you don't. I'll still welcome you. It's a strong conscience that's fully persuaded. That's good. Or you could be strict, yet not judging those who are free, but welcoming them. That's not sin. So you'd say, I don't eat meat, but it's okay if you do. I'll still welcome you. So that's a weak conscience, but it's fully persuaded, not wavering. That's okay. Where Paul is, is he's free to be flexible for the sake of fellow believers and the advance of the gospel. That's love. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I've become all things to all men in order that by all means I might save some. 
That's a strong conscience that's fully persuaded, but flexible for the sake of others. And that's because of Paul's overriding concern in this passage is not who's right and who's wrong. It's unity. Now, one more point, a helpful qualification. We tend to think that a Christian is either strong or weak. Two options across the board. Oh, that's a strong Christian. That's a weak Christian. Two options. Well, that assumes a lot. Uh, think about this. Uh, all of us are weaker on at least some disputable matters. So think of it as a spectrum. There's a spectrum here on the screen. There's almost someone to both your left and your right on any given issue. So see that circled point on the spectrum? That's a person who eats meat sold in the market. Now, someone who has a stronger conscience would be able to eat meat that he knows has been sacrificed to idols. The, the person where it's circled, he can't do that. But there's also someone who has a weaker conscience who eats meat that is prepared correctly, but he can't eat meat sold in the market. And then there are some who can't eat meat at all. See, on any given issue, you can be on a spectrum. There's always someone more strict than you. Always. Count on it. Somewhere. There's always someone to both your left and your right. So don't assume that you're weak and they're strong. It, that's, that's probably not the most helpful way to think about it. Uh, in this passage, the three issues, the eating meat and drinking wine and observing holy days, they are all grouped together. So, some of them are weak, some of them are strong. But it's not always like that for every disputable matter. Now, why is that important to mention? Well, when you read a passage like this, you can think, okay, I'm strong. I'm going to read it with reference to me being strong. Well, Actually, you should look, listen really carefully to how Paul addresses the strong and the weak because they both apply to you on whatever the given issue might be. You follow me? So it's important. They both apply to you depending on the issue you're talking about. All right, that's principle one. Principle two, those who have freedom must not look down on those who are strict. Verses three and four. Let not the one who eats despise or treat with contempt, NIV says, the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on, be judgmental towards the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now those who have freedom to do what others do not are tempted to look down on those who they think are too strict. They say things like this. Those people don't understand the freedom we have in Christ. They're not mature like us. They're legalistic. All they think about is rules. Paul condemns that attitude. Now, some of us have backgrounds in various subcultures with reputations for having relatively strict standards on third-level issues. For example, we're in Greenville, home of Bob Jones University, and many churches in that network. Many people in those subcultures have weak consciences on some third-level issues. But it's a mistake to assume that they all do. Some people in those subcultures have strong consciences on many issues, but are choosing to exercise their liberty in order to serve those around them. And they're contextualizing in order to serve others. 
So be careful about assuming that everyone in a particular church setting or institution has a weaker conscience on many issues. That's probably not the case. All right, uh, third principle. Those who are strict must not be judgmental towards those who have freedom. Again, verses 3 and 4. I won't reread them. But those who are stricter on whatever the issue are tempted to be judgmental towards those who are more free. They say things like this. How can they be Christians and do that? They're hurting the testimony of Christ. Don't they know that they're supposed to give up stuff like that for the sake of the gospel? Now, let's step back and looking at principles 2 and 3, those different groups there. What are the reasons that Paul gives in verses 3 and 4 for why we should not look down on those who are stricter than we are? And why we should not be judgmental towards those who are freer? Why is that such a serious sin? He gives two reasons. Look at the end of verse 3. God has welcomed him. See that at the very end? So, why do we think that we have the right to reject someone whom God has welcomed? Are we holier than God? God himself allows people to have different opinions on these matters, so why do we want to force everyone to agree with us? And there's a second reason. It's in verse 4. We're not the masters of other believers. When I look down on another believer, in essence, I'm, I'm acting like I'm his master. I'm acting as though he's my servant. But God is his master. And in these sorts of areas, we need to let God do his work and let God be the master. And I need to shut up and welcome my brother. And God's a better master than I am. Now, I just want to qualify at this point that third-level issues are not unimportant. I don't mean to trivialize them. It's okay to talk about them. It's okay to preach about them. It's okay to tweet about them and blog about them and write about them on Facebook and all that stuff, okay? But with at least two conditions. One, have the right spirit. Don't be judgmental towards others who are either more strict or less strict than you. Don't adopt a critical spirit, a condemning attitude. And two, have the right proportion. Don't, uh, don't uh, have disputable matters on the same level as first-level issues or second-level issues. And don't become preoccupied with them and then be divisive about them. These issues should not be so important to you that it's all you want to talk about. And they shouldn't be the main reason for why you join a church. They shouldn't be issues that you're most passionate about. You're constantly trying to win people over to your position. And then if they disagree with you, you know, watch out with that relationship. So what can happen in a church is that a subculture develops in which the majority hold particular views on a group of these third-level issues, these disputable matters. And then when someone joins that assembly, whether by transferring in or becoming a Christian recently, they may feel pressure to adopt the whole package if they want to be good Christians. And then those in the church who might not hold those majority views might feel pressured to change for the wrong reasons and feel judged. It's not where you want to be. Principle four. Each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
So the, the issue here is illustrating the principle. The issue is, should we observe Jewish holy days? And that issue illustrates the principle. What's the principle? On disputable matters, you should obey your conscience. This does not mean that your conscience is always right. We actually need to adjust our consciences sometimes. We adjust them to fit God's will better. But this does mean that you cannot be a healthy Christian and constantly sin against your conscience. You must be fully convinced of your present position on food or drink or special days or whatever the issue and then live consistently by that decision until God may lead you to adjust your conscience. I've used the word conscience several times, so uh, better stop here. What, what do I mean by conscience? What does the word conscience mean? Well, here's, here's my attempt at defining the word. The conscience is your consciousness, your awareness, your sense, your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Let me give you five quick qualifications. So number one, this is inherent in all humans, whether Christians or non-Christians. Everybody has a conscience. Second, it's independent. That's why your, your conscience can plague you with guilt when you wish it would stop. Third, it can produce differing results for people based on differing moral standards. Four, it can change for a complex of reasons. You might think that something is wrong at one point in your life, but then think it's right at another point in your life. Or think that something is right at one point in your life, but then think it's wrong at another point in your life. Your conscience can change. And five, it functions as a monitor, witness, judge, and guide. So it monitors how you conform to moral standards. It accuses and condemns you when you do wrong. It commends and defends you when you do right. It warns you before you do wrong. And it urges you to do right. That's your conscience. So the word conscience doesn't appear in Romans 14, but the concept does. And the word does occur in a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 8. So it's clear from these passages that Christian consciences are not identical. And I'm drawing here, especially from a man named Bob Priest, Robert Priest, professor of international studies, mission, and anthropology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was raised in Bolivia as a missionary kid, later conducted nearly two years of anthropological field research with the Aguarana in Peru, and he focused on traditional religion and conversion to Christianity. Fascinating guy. He's done some really cool studies. But he wrote one article in particular that demonstrates what I'm about to show you. Here's a slide showing his conclusions regarding the conscience. So we have two triangles here. Christian A is the smaller triangle. Christian B is the larger one. And you see how they overlap? Okay, this illustrates that no two Christians have the same conscience. They overlap, but they're not identical. Their disagreements is the areas where they don't overlap. So the triangle for Christian B is bigger because it's packed with more rules. He has a stricter or weaker conscience than Christian A. Now, when this is the case, imagine you're Christian A and you're dealing with a Christian B. Never encourage someone to sin against their conscience. We must respect the consciences of other people and not make fun of their rules. It's okay to slowly help them re-educate their conscience, to train their conscience to be more in line with God's standards, but never compel someone to sin against their conscience. And the next slide shows that none of our consciences perfectly match God's standards. See, God's standards is, is that third triangle there. 
As we understand God's will more and more, we're continually adding rules to our conscience that God's word says should be there. We're continually weeding out stuff that should not be there. And this process, it's a process, takes our whole life. But that's okay, because we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the Word of God, and we have each other. Now, before Paul became a Christian, he had a conscience, and his conscience had a lot of good things in it, stuff that should have been there. But he also had some stuff that shouldn't have been there, like it's okay to persecute Christians, (laughs) right? (laughs) I had to get weeded out. Uh. All right, principle five. Everything you do or refrain from doing must be for God's glory. Verses 6 to 9. The one who observes the day observes it, how? In honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats how? In honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains how? In honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So both the weak and the strong can please God, even while holding different views on disputable matters. You see that? They have different positions, but the same motivation. You see that phrase? It's in honor of the Lord. They're both glorifying God while holding different positions. They're both doing what they're doing for the glory of God. Their motivations are not that they care what others will think or say, or they want to fit in better by being strict like others in their church, or they want to fit in better by being a little more free like others in their church, or they want to break free from their strict background and do all the stuff they never were allowed to do. Those are bad motivations. And while we should believe the best about other people, And their motives, that's Christian love. We shouldn't assume that our motives are okay. So we want to be generous towards others and tough on ourselves. And in the book, Ethics for a Brave New World by John and Paul Feinberg, they suggest eight questions or tests that each Christian must face when deciding whether or not to indulge in a given activity. I'm just going to read off their eight questions quickly. Uh, but these are, these are a helpful list of questions to run through. And you think, should I do this? Question one, am I fully persuaded that it's right? It cites Romans 14, verses 5, 14, and 23. Am I fully persuaded that it is right? Second, can I do it as unto the Lord? Verses 6 to 8. Can I do it as unto the Lord? Third, can I do it without being a stumbling block to my brother or sister in Christ? Verses 13, 15, 20 to 22. Can I do it without being a stumbling block to my brother or sister in Christ? I'm going to define stumbling block in a moment, so we'll come back to that. Four, does it bring peace? Verses 17 and 18. Does it bring peace? Five, does it edify my brother? Verse 19, does it edify my brother? Six, is it profitable? First Corinthians six twelve. is it profitable? Seven, does it enslave me? Again, 1 Corinthians 6.12. Does it enslave me? And finally, the big broad question, does it bring glory to God? 1 Corinthians 10.31. Does it bring glory to God? Good diagnostic questions when you're thinking through how to move forward on an issue. Principle six. Do not judge each other in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God. 
verses 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, if we thought more about our own situation before the judgment seat of God, do you think we might be less likely to pass judgment on other Christians? You think? Uh, On that day, we will be busy enough answering for our own issues, our own sins, our own life. We don't need to be spending our short life meddling in the lives of others. In these matters where Christians, good Christians, disagree, we need to just mind our business and let God be the judge. Principle seven. Your freedom to eat meat is correct. But don't let your freedom destroy, key word, destroy the faith of a weak brother. Verses 13 to 15. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, quoting J.D. Crowley here, strict Christians have a responsibility not to impose their rules on everyone else in a church. It's a sin to try to bind someone else's conscience with a rule that doesn't come from God. But on the other hand, uh, if a brother doesn't like my freedoms, that's his problem. We're talking about just preference there. If he doesn't like my freedoms, that's his problem. What can I do with that? What can I do about that? Okay, he doesn't like it. But if a brother falls into sin because of my freedoms, that is my problem. Christ gave up his life for that brother, so am I unwilling to give up my freedom for him? Let's tease this out here. Those who have a strong conscience have a choice in these matters. For example, they can eat meat or not eat meat. There's a choice. Those with a weaker conscience don't have a choice. They don't eat meat. So those with a strong conscience should be willing to give up their freedom so that they don't destroy the faith of someone with a weak conscience with the result that they turn away from the Christianity that they once professed. Now, that's what this passage is talking about when it refers to putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in another's way. It's talking about bringing spiritual harm to other people, also in verses 20 and 21. Paul is not saying that we must refrain from any activity that another believer may disagree with. If that's the principle you're drawing from this, then you won't be able to do anything, and someone will disagree with that. So, for example, I have the freedom to use modern Bible translations. I'm using one in this sermon, the ESV. I've quoted from the NIV. My only option is not the KJV. Yet I know people who are very unhappy, to put it mildly, when I use a translation 
other than the KJV. What do I do? Well, as best I can see, when I use, say, the ESV or the NIV, I'm not bringing spiritual harm to them. I'm not causing them to turn away from Christianity. So I, I don't need to refrain f- for their sake. Though, if I'm in a context where I'm ministering, preaching, teaching primarily to them, I might adjust. Okay? That makes sense? So the question becomes, how exactly might we bring spiritual harm to another Christian? And when you read this passage, it's kind of frustrating because Paul doesn't exactly tell us. Uh, uh, Doug Moo wisely, I think, suggests two ways, two possibilities. Number one, are engaging in an activity that another believer thinks to be wrong may encourage that other believer to do it as well. And then they would be sinning because they're not acting from faith. Verse 23. Okay, that seems like one possible way. Another is an ostentatious flaunting of liberty on a particular matter may so deeply offend someone that they may turn from the faith altogether. I think that's the main concern here in Romans 14. Now, before I move on, Moo highlights another very important distinction, and I'm going to share his words with you on the screen. Uh, In Christian books and from Christian pulpits, you've probably heard this, sometimes here, Romans 14 applied something like this. Believers should refrain from drinking alcohol out of deference to other Christians who might be inclined to overindulge and abuse alcohol. So those other Christians are the weaker brothers or sisters. They're they're weak because they have a weakness for alcohol. Anyone heard that before? Okay. All right, a few of you. All right. All right. Now, the principle, of course, is valid enough. Christians should recognize the weakness of fellow Christians and do what they can to keep them from succumbing to those weaknesses. Amen. But we must point out that this idea of weakness is not what Paul's talking about in Romans 14. Remember, in this passage, who is the weak brother? Who is weak in faith? The weak brother is the one who is weak in faith. He believes that his faith does not allow him to do certain things. The weakness has nothing to do with his emotional or physical susceptibility. It's a theological weakness. So rather than referring to a Christian who is overly fond of alcohol... The weak brother is one who is convinced that drinking alcohol at all is wrong and condemns others for doing it. That's that's what it is in Romans 14. And I'm moving this week, so if you have questions, you can talk to Matt. Um, uh, Principle 8. Disagreements about eating and drinking are not important in the kingdom of God. Building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy is the important thing. Verses 16 to 21. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So what's the most important thing? Is it eating or drinking or observing holy days? Is that the most important thing? No. 
Uh, so schismatically dividing over less important things does not make for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Principle nine. If you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. Verse 29a. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. So you have a lot of freedom in Christ. Don't flaunt that. Don't show it off in a way that may cause others to sin. And be especially careful as you're nurturing the faith of young people and new Christians. Now some who have weaker consciences may police others by pressuring them to be strict like they are. But Paul says not to do that. We should keep these issues between us and God. And those with a weaker conscience, this is rarer, but this happens. Those with a weaker conscience commit an even more serious error when they insist that you must hold their view in order to be a Christian. And when you say that holding a particular view on a disputable matter is essential to be a Christian, you've crossed the line into legalism. And here's how Sam Storms defines legalism. It's a tendency to regard as divine law things that God has neither required nor forbidden in Scripture, and the corresponding inclination to look with suspicion on others for their failure or refusal to conform. And do you elevate to the status of moral law something the Bible does not require? That's a big problem. Principle 10. A person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. Second half of 22 and then 23. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Don't sin against your conscience. Listen to your conscience. But, because God is the Lord of the believer's conscience, he also expects you to gradually train and adjust your conscience to match God's will as revealed in Scripture. So to train your conscience is not to sin against it. It's to put it under the lordship of Christ. And to live according to your conscience brings blessing. So to live according to your conscience as you train it to more and more align with God's standards is to experience more blessing. So how do you know the difference between training your conscience and sinning against your conscience. What's the difference? Well, you're sinning when you believe that your conscience is speaking correctly and you go against it. You're training your conscience when Christ teaches you through Scripture that your conscience has been wrong in a particular area, so you go against it. That was Peter's situation in Acts chapter 10. He's in Joppa, he receives a vision, kill and eat, he sees some animals that he had never eaten in his life because he was following the Old Testament food laws. He would never eat those animals. He would never do that. And God himself, Jesus himself, tells Peter, Peter, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? I can't. My conscience won't let me. God's talking to you, Peter. It's okay. You can do this. Now, was Peter weak in faith? He's, an, he's a leading apostle. It, he was weak in faith in the Romans 14 sense on this issue. 
And he needed to adjust his conscience. And he did. And he had that food with those Gentiles doing that, enjoying food with people at table fellowship he would have never done if Jesus hadn't told him to do it. He adjusted his conscience. And sometimes we need to adjust our conscience too. I've had to adjust my conscience or train it or re-educate it many times. For example, when I was living at home with my parents, my family was part of a very culturally conservative church at one point. And that church had a subculture with an unusually strict set of dress standards. And among other things, they thought it was best if guys did not wear shorts or jeans. I'm getting there. You're looking at me. I know. I'm not wearing jeans or shorts. Um, So uh, whether you were exercising or mowing your lawn or playing basketball or flag football, the guys would wear nylon wind pants or khakis. And I thought that was kind of weird at first. Uh, But I wanted to be a good Christian. I wanted to go with the program, the whole package. I wanted to please God. So I followed suit. And didn't realize that by doing that, it actually got ingrained in my conscience. And that when I moved away from that subculture to a slightly less conservative subculture, it took a little while for me to train my conscience that under the Lordship of Christ, it's okay for me to wear shorts or jeans. Principle 11. We must follow the example of Christ who put others first. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So does this mean that the strong have to agree on every position with the weak? Is that what verse 1 is saying? No. Is this saying that the strong need to put up with or endure or tolerate the weak? Like tolerate something you don't like? No. The word bear with, you've got to bear with them. That means that we're gladly helping the weak by refraining from doing anything that would hurt their faith. And one other thing, verse 2. Be careful not to misunderstand that phrase, let us please his neighbor. This isn't people pleasing. Like I'm going to either please God, please my neighbor. It's, it's not that. It's, am I going to please my neighbor or please me? We're putting others before ourselves like Jesus himself did. Christ put others first, verse 3. And, and verse 3 puts us in perspective like nothing else. Uh, we can't even begin to imagine the freedoms that Jesus had prior to his coming down and becoming human. He's God. What, what kind of freedoms was he foregoing to do that? He did, verse 3, he did not please himself. He gave up his rights and his freedoms to become a servant so that we could be saved from wrath. So compared to what Jesus did, is it asking a lot of us to give up some of our freedoms for the sake of the spiritual well-being of other people? Not at all. Not even close. 
Final principle, number 12. We bring glory to God when we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this summarizes the whole section. It's similar to chapter 14, verse 1, that opened the section, but it adds two things, a comparison and a purpose. Look at the verse. You see the comparison? Welcome one another. What's the comparison? As Christ has welcomed you. And what's the purpose? For the glory of God. So it matters how you treat those who disagree with you on disputable matters. When you welcome them as Christ welcomes you, you glorify God. Now that is God's brilliant solution for when Christians disagree about disputable matters. It is much easier said than done. So let's ask God for grace to respond to his word in a way that gives him glory. So would you pray with me?